true facts of history, to illuminate the hidden boundaries of the conflict, and bring you to the great awakening of the American mind. Remember, the lies are many, but the truth is one. back here with the Looking Glass Forum, and we are here just whipping it together how we do it. We're not interested too much in the quality of the actual track or the audio or any of the kind of thrills of entertainment media. We're really just trying to get into the subject matter and get into the, the deeper underlying dilemmas faced by a lot of the complex geoeconomics and geopolitics that are facing us today that are really just outgrowths of the history over the last 200 years. And in a lot of cases, these developments of history are widely unknown, misunderstood, or broadly mischaracterized by people who seek to hide these aspects of history or to create their own narratives out of history. So you see a lot of the college textbooks, which are really just subversive documents that don't have any real actual history. And when we say history, we're talking about the times in which people actually lived and what their motivations were and what their stated goals were or their stated antithesis was. In other words, what they intended to accomplish, even though their stated goals were spoken contrary to what their actual objectives were. So these true dynamics that are at work are really what we're trying to get at. And the lessons of history reveal patterns that we can begin to comparatively analyze. And what becomes more strictly defined is the operation of clandestine organizations who are operating under deceptive political inference, and yet all their practical actions are subversive and antithetical. That's why we see the Society of Jesus fade into the background of history at the same time in 1773 that the Illuminati controlled aristocracy and the houses of the nobility, the royal houses, and the knighthood orders across Europe rose up to destroy the enemies of the Vatican and the Jesuits. So as the Jesuits are falling into the background, they vivify and bring to life a new secret order that accomplishes their goals in their stead. The Jesuits secretly controlled the Illuminati and the Illuminati controlled the Jacobins. And the Jacobins were a pseudo-Jewish revolutionary group which permanently erased the King of France who had permitted his father's Edict of Nantes to exist. And remember, the Edict of Nantes was put into place because of the, the Bartholomew Day Massacre. And we talked about this a little bit before, but Colonel Coligny and, and a lot of the other Huguenots and Protestants were brought into the city under the presumption of safe passage to have a civilized discussion about religious matters when the Jesuits, who controlled the Queen, Queen Medici there, and Catherine Medici, they just got their weapons and their troops ready and they suddenly attacked the Huguenots and killed tens of thousands, upwards of 100,000, just basically wiped them out. So it was because of this fear that the rational thinking person had towards the dangerous trickery and lies of the ultramontane knights and the Jesuits and all the, the nobility who was established by the Vatican. And because of these fears, the King of France had previously established the Edict of Nantes, and then they had tried to have it revoked, and then they put it back, and the Edict of Nantes was put back into place so that there was religious protection. Protection. And of course, this was against the will of the Pope, and it was against the design of the Vatican. So these pseudo-Jewish revolutionaries, called the Jacobins, were set into motion to permanently destroy the King of France, who had permitted his father's Edict of Nantes to exist. And this Edict of Nantes was a declaration of peace and safety for all French who were not Catholic. It was a protection against the violence of the Inquisition, which was busy prosecuting counter-Reformation 
policies by arresting, torturing, and burning alive all accused heretics, Jews and witches. There was no trial. There was just the terror of the accusation. The accusation alone was enough to destroy you and your life and your family. The Edict of Nantes protected Protestants, and when it was used to block the Jesuits' persecution of the Jansenists and the Calvinists, the Anabaptists and the Huguenots, and their inquisition and their, their religious persecution was restricted. The simple and cynical move, the paramilitary discipline of the Jesuits, was to use the Illuminati power structure of secret societies, the aristocratic class of nobility and royals, and all the knighthood orders to animate the outrageous riots and chaos of the Jacobins. And such a provocative name was meant to indict the Jewish people with the infamy and the ignominy of the crimes that these ultramontane Vatican conspirators were committing behind the guise of the Illuminati. And so this maneuver of scientific warfare and covert calculating machination is a pattern taken from the playbook of the ultramontane power structure of the Roman religion. They have many, many centuries and millennia thousands of years of practice. The Jesuits would use the Illuminati conspiracy in the same archetypal pattern later on, when we would see them set up William Russell, when he would go and visit Germany, right at the time of Hegel's death, William Russell would be set up with the Skull and Bones Club in the quiet Yale University in 1833. A mere 20 years later, the American nation would explode in the conflagration of the Civil War. Not much has been written about the Illuminati, Skull and Bones influence leading up to the Civil War, and that is a discussion we are getting ready to delve into. Of course, we know that the assassin's booth and the other assassin that they, they found hiding in the Pope's Savoie Guard in the Vatican, they were Knights of the Golden Circle. Her, we know that John Wilkes Booth and Henry Surratt were Confederates of the South. They were Democrats, and they belonged to a secret club called the Knights of the Golden Circle. And so we'll see how later on how this ties together with the Illuminati control structure. So as we're going forward, I want to read a little article here that I found, and it's really crucial that we understand that, that the Edict of Nantes was revoked, and we're talking about back in 1600. So there was a time when there was the protection exists, and then it was revoked, and then as we're getting up into this new this period in the 1760s, 1770s, 1780s, the, the new king is going to start to allow there to be religious toleration again. So it wasn't called the Edict of Nantes, but it, it was a restoration of the same edict that was previously there in this era of enlightenment and renaissance, we're going to see that the inhuman cruelty of the religious persecution of the Vatican is going to be start to be disallowed. And when this happens, the Vatican power structure is just going to go ahead and, and absolutely destroy the French monarchy and replace it with. So this this article is called From the Re from the Revocation of the Edict of Nantes to the French Revolution in 1789. Persecutions occasioned by the revocation of the Edict of Nantes took place under Louis the Fourteenth. The edict was made by Henry the Great of France in 1589 and secured the Protestants an equal right in every aspect, whether civil or religious, with other subjects of the realm. All those privileges Louis the Fourteenth confirmed to the Protestants by another statute called the Edict of Nîmes and kept them inviolable to the end of his reign. On the occasion of Louis the Fourteenth, the kingdom was almost ruined by civil wars. At this critical juncture, the Protestants, heedless of our Lord's admonition, they, they that take the sword shall perish with the sword, took such an active part in favor of the king that he was constrained to acknowledge himself indebted to their arms for his establishment on the throne. Instead of the cherishing and rewarding that party who had fought for him, he reasoned that the same power which had protected could overturn him, and, and listening to the popish machinations, he began to issue out proscriptions and restrictions indicative of his final determination. 
Rochelle was presently fettered with an incredible number of denunciations. Montauban and Malois were sacked by soldiers. Popish commissioners were appointed to preside over the affairs of the Protestants, and there was no appeal from their ordinance except to the king's council. This struck at the root of their civil and religious exercises and prevented them, being Protestants, from suing a Catholic in any court of law. This was followed by another injunction to make an inquiry in all parishes into whatever the Protestants had said or done for 20 years past. This filled the prisons with innocent victims and condemned others to the galleys or banishment. Protestants were expelled from all offices, trades, privileges, and employees, thereby depriving them of the means of getting their bread, and they proceeded to such excess in this brutality, they would not suffer even the midwives to officiate that compelled their women to submit themselves in that crisis of nature to their enemies, the brutal Catholics. Their children were taken from them to be educated by Catholics, and even at seven years of age, made to embrace popery, the Reformed were prohibited from relieving their own sick or poor from all private worship, and divine service was to be performed in the presence of a popish priest. To prevent the unfortunate victims from leaving the kingdom, all the passages of the frontiers were strictly guarded. At the good hand of God, about 150,000 escaped their vigilance and emigrated to different countries to relate the, the dismal narrative. All that had been related hitherto were only infringements on their established charter, the Edict of Nantes. At length, the diabolical revocation of that edict passed on the 18th of October, 1685, and was registered the 22nd contrary to all form of law. Instantly, the dragoons were quartered upon the residents throughout the realm and filled all France with like news that the king would no longer suffer any Huguenots in his kingdom, and therefore they must resolve to change their religion. Hereupon, the intendants in every parish, which were popish governors and spies, set over the Protestants, assembled the reformed inhabitants, and told them they must, without delay, turn Catholic, either freely or by force. The Protestants replied that they were ready to sacrifice their lives and estates to the king, but their conscience being gods, they could not dispose their conscience to them. And instantly the troops seized the gates and avenues of the cities, and placing guards in all the passageways, entered with sword in hand, crying out aloud, Die or be Catholics! In short, they practiced every wickedness and horror they could devise to force them to change their religion. They hanged both men and women by their hair or their feet and smoked them with hay until they were nearly dead. And if they refused to sign a recantation, they hung them up again and repeated their barbarities. Until wearied out with torments without death, they forced many to yield to them. Others they plucked off all the hairs of their heads and beards with pincers. Others they threw on great fires and pulled them out again, repeating it until they exhorted a promise to recant. Some they stripped naked and often offering them the most infamous insults. They stuck them with pins from head to, to foot and lanced them with pen knives. And sometimes with red hot pincers, they dragged them by the nose until they promised to turn their religion. Sometimes they tied fathers and husbands while they ravished their wives and daughters before their eyes, multitudes, they imprisoned in the most noisome dungeons, where they practice all sorts of torments in secret, their wives and children, they shut up in monasteries, such as endeavor to escape by flight, were pursued in the woods and hunted in the fields, and shot out like wild beasts.
Nor did any condition or quality screen them from the ferocity of these infernal dragoons. Even the members of the parliament and military officers, though an actual service, were ordered to quit their posts and repair directly to their houses to suffer the storm. Such as complained to the king were sent to the Bastille, where they drank the same cup. The bishops and the intendants marched at the head of the dragoons with the troop of missionaries and monks, and of course Jesuits, other ecclesiasticals, to animate the soldiers to an execution so agreeable to their holy church and so glorious to their demon god and their tyrant king. Informing the edict to repeal the Edict of Nance, the council was divided. Some would have all the ministers detained and forced into popery as well as the laity. Others were banished with them because their presence would strengthen the Protestants in perseverance. And if they were forced to turn, they would ever be secret and powerful enemies in the bosom of the church by their knowledge and experience in the controversial matters. The reasoning prevailing, they were sentenced to banishment and only 15 days allowed them to depart the kingdom. On the same day, the edict for revoking the Protestants' charter was published. They demolished their churches and banished their ministers, whom they allowed by 24 hours to leave Paris. The papists would not suffer them to depose, dispose of their effects and threw every obstacle in their way to delay their escape until the limited time was expired which subjected them to condemnation for life to the galleys. The guards were doubled at the seaports, and the prisons were filled with the victims who endure torments and want at which human nature must shudder. The sufferings of the ministers and others who were sent to the galleys seemed to exceed all. Chained to the oar, they were exposed to the open night, the open air day and night at all seasons. For want of sufficient clothing and necessary cleanliness, they were most grievously tormented with vermin and cruelly tormented with the cold, which removed by night the executioners who beat and tormented them by day. Instead of a bed, they were allowed sick or well, only a hard board, 18 inches wide to sleep on, without any covering but their wretched apparel, which was a shirt of coarsest canvas. So I'll just stop the reading right there, and you can see that we're talking about an existential conflict, and it was the determined work of the Vatican to control all religious matters and spiritual matters, and all the other matters were beneath them, were underneath these spiritual and temporal powers. So since they had divine right and the divine providence of God, and they had the holy magic of religion, and they could not be, they were infallible, as it were, then the king, who had no courage, allowed his people to suffer and be destroyed in such a terrible way in order to placate the prelates and the princes and the cardinals back in Rome. But at this point, I think it falls to me to point out to you that these same dragoons who are terrorizing the French people on behalf of the king in order to destroy them and generally rape them and burn them and to otherwise forcefully convert them to Roman Catholicism, these dragoons are none other than the same Hessian soldiers, the Hessian paid mercenary troops that were going to be financed by the Rothschild banking establishments, the separate Rothschild banks in England and in France and in Germany were going to be effectively used to bring in forces of soldiers who have no conscience and who are there just to rape and plunder the countryside in order to affect the punishment of the, the papacy as the papacy and the Jesuits are leaning on the king. So this is going to generally stay in place 
for Louis the Fourteenth and Louis the Fifteenth. But under Louis the Fifteenth, we're going to approach this period called the Truce of 1744, and the the urgent, the, the forcefulness of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes is going to start to diminish. And when this happens, the power of the papacy over religion is going to begin to diminish as well. And their argument that heretics should be destroyed is going to become more and more obviously barbaric and horrifying. So the truce of 1744 approaches. The Vatican knows that it can no longer require the king to set forth the Inquisition to destroy its people. And since the people are no longer going to obey the church, and the king is going to no longer obey the church, then it's time to detonate the entire French government and the French citizenry and the entire apparatus in the, the Great Reign of Terror, which is going to hit in the 1789. Move to our American Revolution in 1776. You understand that Ben Franklin and all the founding fathers, they all knew how to read the newspapers and they all could see the writing on the wall. They understood the Illuminati. You have to look at their letters. They understood well. And when the Jesuit order was brought back into being in 1813 and 1814, where it had been extinguished forever, but it was somehow brought back into being. There, Thomas Jefferson is writing letters to John Adams, and they're discussing how dangerous this new resurrected Jesuit order would be. So, during this time, we have to understand that the Americans knew right away what they were in store for when the British, the massive British Navy shows up with their red coats and they bring all these Hessian dragoons and mercenaries in. And then as the news starts to spread throughout Virginia and throughout Philadelphia and the colonies that the Hessian soldiers are being ordered to, and the British red coats are being ordered to stay within the dwellings of the, the colonists. So their homes and their barns are to be opened up and their food is to, and their beds are to be given to these soldiers. So you can see the obvious connection and parallel with what was happening in the persecution in France just 50 years earlier. So in this, the American people, the American colonists at the time, would band together to fight this dread inquisition and rape, pillage, and plunder that was being set forth by these Hessian Rothschild-paid mercenaries of King George III. And it was the same Jesuit counselors who were going to do the same thing that had just happened to all those poor French Huguenots. And in order to avoid that, these Puritans and these Baptists and these Bible believers here in America band together and fought for the revolution of this American nation. So Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, he really gets a lot of credit for the name and for these concepts of the Illuminati, the Hegelian dialectic, for instance. But during the French Revolution, when a lot of these principles were being employed, and he was involved with continental Freemasonry in Germany, and he was involved with the Illuminati, he was going to be the second in command after Adam Weishaupt. During this time, when Adam Weishaupt was leading the Illuminati, the Jesuits were ordered to disband by the order of the Pope, and so by the approval of many monarchs and realms throughout Europe, they were made illegal, so the Jesuit order had to, to disappear. So that's when we see the rise of the Illuminati out of Bavaria, and very educated men like Adam Weishaupt are going to use the Illuminati power structure that's uniform throughout the various courts of the kings, even kings who were at war or at peace, had active members of the Illuminati operating in the background. And so that's how they were able to affect a uniform political implementation of force and hegemony throughout various realms, because they were acting as in the capacity as conspirators, and they were operating by a different agenda, irregardless of the particular king or nation. So at this time, when Hegel is a very young man, he will witness the use of these destructive principles that bring a total 
catastrophic raising to the ground of the French monarch. And this was because the French monarch had failed to enforce the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, and once in 1744, the new popular era in the modern age would begin, and they would allow Protestants and Huguenots again to operate in France. Then at this time, they would use the power of the Illuminati to absolutely destroy and punish the people of France in an epic and historic way. So later on, Hegel would become the leader of the Illuminati, and he would be a powerful and influential philosopher in his own right, and they would continue their creation of multiplying agents, and we would see this in the life of, like we said before, William Huntington Russell, who traveled to Germany and visited at the time of Hegel's death and would make contact with an unnamed club there, and he would bring back to America, the Order of Skull and Bones. And this Order of Skull and Bones would have Alfonso Taft and other men of great power were immediately ensconced within federal government and within positions of power. So the Skull and Bones, the Order of Skull and Bones immediately had a lot of power. And they would have a lot of influence as we're leading up to the 1860s toward the Civil War. That's where we're trying to go here. In order to build out more of this history for you, we have an interesting little audio clip here from Federal Jack and Steve Stars, and they're doing a little a special in-depth discussion about the Lincoln assassination. So let's go ahead and take a listen to that. A lot of very, very important, good information coming out. So, uh, Steve, I'll, I'll shut up now and uh, go right ahead and tell the listeners what uh, you were telling me. And uh, I would say pretty much start back around like the beginning where you were telling me about uh, John Surratt and everything else. Yeah, you know, we've uh, in the past, well, we've done some, some shows that have talked about historical events, and a lot of people think, well, that's kind of interesting history. But we always try to relate to what's happening right now and how we got into this terrible situation as history progressed. And one of the darkest moments in American history, which really was a foreshadowing of the Kennedy assassination, was what happened with Abraham Lincoln at the end of, of the Civil War and the assassination of Lincoln. Um, you have to understand how these events came into came to play. Uh, we could talk a little bit about how the war took place and, and the banking powers that wanted to rip this country apart. Uh, I believe it was Bismarck who had said many years after that the, the, the banking cartels of, of Europe wanted to tear the United States apart because they foresaw it becoming a major superpower. They didn't want the competition. So there were the bankers were, were actually backing both sides of the war, of course. But in, primarily in the South, they wanted to expand slavery. Yes, slavery was a dead institution agriculturally in the South. But they were looking at mine and mining was very big. Remember, uh, uh, England had suffered under their gold standard and the economy had gone very badly. But when gold was found in 1849 in California, all of a sudden it began to revive the capability of backing currencies by gold. And so there was a big gold rush. And there was, there was mining all over the New World, especially in Canada and the United States. And here, here was the place where you wanted slaves because they could work around the clock, 24 hours. I mean, in an agricultural situation, they could plant and harvest and the rest of the time you have to take care of them. So slavery was dying in the South. Plus the railroads who were moving to the West were getting huge easements of property on both sides of the track. Sometimes you could get up, I guess, almost even up to 20 miles uh, of uh, easement and property. So this, this meant that they had land, they had places to raise cattle, the, they were building railroads, they were going to have the slaves build the railroads and then go to work on the land uh, that they had built the railroads to reach. So mining and all that, wanted, they wanted to expand this kind of an empire, feudalistic system 
into the territories, places as, as high as, as, as uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota. And, uh, of course, from the very beginning of the United States, even Washington was opposed to allowing slavery in the new territories. And the Mason-Dixon line was about to be erased with controversies like the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, the uh, the Slave Act of 1850, Dred Scott, some of these things. So there's this tremendous amount of tension about where the United States was going to go, and that's what led to the war. But getting into the, the whole story about Abraham Lincoln, you know, you have to realize that at one point in his life, he had defended a priest by the name of Shinnequay, Father Shinnequay, who had come to him and said, I need an attorney because uh, I've run into all this framing uh, trouble that, that has come from my bishops and, and, the, and the church. Essentially, they're trying to run me out. I'm trying to get some things done, and we're having problems, and they're framing me and uh, trying to take away all my ministry, my, my churches. They're taking away my flocks, and they're you know they're, they're making me out to be a really bad guy. Even you know saying he had the relationships with a little girl that was all proven to be untrue and everything like that. So he, Lincoln took his case and won the case. And what had happened was after this, Shinnecke uh, said the Jesuits will never forgive. They're going to get you. So you've got to remember that all over the, the New World, the Jesuits had, had had a very bad reputation. They were banned by Pope Clement XIV in uh, 1763, I believe it was. And, uh, or was it 1773? But right, right about that time, they were run out of nations in Europe. Uh, Spain, Italy, uh, various other places had decided that they had enough of the Jesuits after 500 years of intrigue, assassinations, uh, you know, political uh you know, mischief, all kinds of things. It's happened over and over and over. And so this gave a little bit of a reprieve in the United States for a period of time. If you read the quotes of people like John Adams, you'll realize that a lot of people, John Adams, Jefferson, Lafayette, the, the uh, General Lafayette, who assisted Washington during the war, all of these people had some very bad things to say about this particular organization. But they began to emerge again because I believe they actually poisoned uh, Clement XIV. And when they did, and he knew it too, of course, he knew they were coming back and they were going to get back into control, hiding behind the Pope. The Jesuits operate a little bit uh, behind the Vatican, much like the CIA operates behind President of the United States. He can't control them. They have their own agenda. He has to rely on them for their connections, but at the same time, uh, he can't really trust them either, as, as is the case of John F. Kennedy, another person who I believe was killed by the same people, the CIA, the Jesuits. Right now, the Jesuits control the entire spy network of the United States. Everybody from James Clapper, Leon Panetta, David Petraeus, George Tennant, and you know, you look at other people like Nancy Pelosi, John Boehner, uh, Biden is a Jesuit trained, Kerry was Jesuit trained. All these people who run our government right now are Jesuits. So you can see that they're in this interview, they're discussing the real intrinsic matter of security when it comes down to what are the underpinning and driving forces that are bringing to life the various aspects of our government today. And ultimately, if you look through history and look in the past, there's been numerous occasions when people expect that they have relative safety that they have popular protections, that they have laws that are established to keep them safe from tyrannical persecution, and then they wake up one day to find out that that indeed is not the case, and that all along, perhaps 
in the 1920s and the 1930s. It wasn't immediately apparent to you if you were a Jew in Germany that suddenly the government might turn around and seize you and destroy your entire community and your family and your entire people by the million. And so these are the kind of queries that we have to make about history. And we really need to focus in on this era at the time of Abraham Lincoln and explore how the power structure of Europe was taking root and building up in the United States. So we would have the establishment of the Order of Skull and Bones and Yale University in 1833, which would be situated there in a prestigious place of academia. And then we would have, at the same time, in New Haven, Connecticut, the establishment of the Knights of Columbus in 1832. And they would situate themselves as a good old boys club and uh, uh, almost like a police union. I see people uh, belonging to the, the Order of Papal Knights and the Knights of Columbus. And their influence within the, the system of national governance within the United States, local and statewide, is not scrutinized or immediately apparent. But it's obviously necessary for them to establish their control. And this is how they effectively secreted their direct influence from behind the camouflage of secret societies and papal knights. The American Revolution was nearly decimated by the effects of the Civil War and the centralization of federal power in an all-powerful executive, which was established by the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And like a speeding locomotive whose engineer has been thrown overboard, the powers of the commander-in-chief and the numerous executive orders would grow increasingly out of control. Even Obama actually created DACA legislation without any Congress, without any legislative body at all. The Supreme Court even upheld it. So we have to recognize that half of the people on the Supreme Court went to Jesuit universities. And you don't have to be overwhelmingly conspiratorially minded to wonder how rigid and tight is this phalanx of Georgetown, Washington, D.C. elites. And the general lack of historical knowledge is ubiquitous. And you can watch a three-hour lecture on C-SPAN about the Lincoln assassination, and they will really focus in on white guilt and slavery, and not on the geopolitical strategy of the Vatican to empower Illuminati agents who are Catholics and Confederates and Democrats to try to overthrow the popular union of the United States. So people forget that, that the Ku Klux Klan, the Confederacy fought to break the union and to keep slaves was primarily Catholic, and it was the Democrat Party. And just to try to emphasize how far we've come from our understanding and uh, the popular culture and in the kind of common sense of the American people, I mean, it's not to find ourselves stuck on the parallel conflict between parties and the kind of bifurcated adversarial system that we seem to be bogged down in, but it's just to reconnect us with our understanding of just the recent history, the last 50 to 100 years in America, just to understand how far we've come and our understanding of what is what, these new millennialists are so interested in pop culture, Beyonce-style political indoctrination that they really have no idea the history of their own party and what it means. So let's listen to this clip by Mark Levin as he kind of brings the level of ignorance about the state of politics home for us. I'm going to say something I probably should say. Any, anyway, anyway, let's move on. You know the thing. Go ahead. I am... Uh, I am very willing to let the American public judge my physical and mental fil my physical as well as my mental fil uh, fitness. Uh, 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 at least get new dentures, for God's sakes. There is an LGBTQ journalism association, the Association of LGBTQ Journalists. I honestly had no idea. Imagine that. I must be racist or xenophobic or homophobic. I must be something. I just didn't know. Will uh, Joe Biden be talking to them? Undoubtedly. 
because he does so indubitably. And so this will get a complete pass on the usual cable channels, a complete pass in the New York Slimes and the Washington Compost, a complete pass by the, uh, the black elites in our culture, a complete pass. He's just so special. Obama's cringing, but he's all behind him. Because this isn't about race. This is about using minorities. It's not about helping minorities. I keep explaining, the Democrat Party is like the Communist Party in some respects. Its top members and its activists, its surrogates, support the party, not the country. It's the party first, not the country first. You and I don't view things that way. We challenge the repubics left and right. We're dissatisfied with the repubics all the time. You don't see that among the Democrats. So vote Democrat. LeBron James, we got to get people to vote. He means vote Democrat. Chair, chair. Really more like chair. Who's getting stupider by the second. Vote Democrat. You want real change? Vote Democrat. There she is in California, one party state. You want change? Vote Democrat. Which is so idiotic. You want change in our cities? Vote Democrat. Well, they are Democrat. Well, vote Democrat anyway. It's about party. I said the other day, and I've said for many, many days, you have to understand what we're dealing with. It's ideology and party. Democrat party, the party of the Confederacy. That is slavery. They say we cannot get slavery out of our DNA. And yet somehow the Democrat Party gets slavery out of its DNA. Somehow people running as Democrats get slavery out of their DNA. It's an amazing thing. When they talk about reparations, what do I say every time? Okay, you wrote reparations by the Democrats. It's the Democrats who enslaved black people. It's the Democrats who represented the Confederacy. It's the Democrats that were a breakaway entity. So what do you want from Republicans? Republicans fought against slavery. Lincoln and the rest. Basic stuff. You want reparations? They go to Nancy Pelosi. She and her party. Not tens of millions of people who weren't even here, whose ancestors weren't even here, but nothing to do with slavery. So, slavery is in our DNA, according to the 1619 Fraudulent Project and the Holocaust-denying New York Slimes. No, it's not in our DNA. It's in their DNA. It's in their DNA. Democrat Party with the slave owners. And it's a remarkable thing when you think about it. How African Americans vote Democrat when the Democrat Party represented the Confederacy and slave. No, 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 Mark, you got it wrong. And this is how they lie about history. It's flipped now. The South is Republican, see? And the Democrats are Northern, see? So you see what that means? That's right. The the answer, the uh, the progeny of the slave owners are now Republicans. No, that's not what happened. The Republicans ran against these Democrats, ran against these segregationists, and defeated them. There was a new wave of Southerners, people moving into the South, the next generation and future and following generations of the South, that wanted nothing to do with that history. Nothing. They didn't flip the Republicans. Flipped to liberty and individualism and a colorblind society and equal justice. That's what they flipped to. 
But anyway, back to Biden. We cannot, as a vibrant country, allow the Democrat Party and their nominee to get away with this kind of a campaign. So I just will stop and make that point and just show that interesting audio clip to show the kind of prevailing attitude over the state of affairs within media and within academia and within politics. And this is juxtaposed against just the, the ignorant masses out there who watch the late night shows and who you can hold up a picture of. of I remember last year when they would show pictures of Joe Biden and these young people who now would have Black Lives Matter shirts on had no idea who it was. They had no idea that it was the vice president. So really the young people, the millennials out there, even the kids who make it into college, are really just going to be dumbed down by the public school systems. They're going to be made into the useful idiot classes that are being stuffed into the neo-Marxist college classrooms and used as props as they go out and they LARP and they're live-action role-playing of psychodramas out on the streets and they pretend as if they're going to pull off a revolution. So I just wanted to point out there that I think it's obvious to some of us who've read a couple of books, who know about history, who know about the actual terms, the definitions, and the philosophical constructs by which all these different aspects of the geopolitical environment in the United States come together. And we have to remember we're out there watching Mitt Romney, and he purports to be a Republican, and he's marching with these neo-Marxist Black Lives Matter groups. And he really has to do that because the the Mormon church or the Mormon temple or what have you had a really long, dark history of white racism against black people. They never allowed any black people in the Mormon church. They considered that black people weren't going to go to heaven and they were burned by their dark skin as a curse from God. And these are the tenets of the Book of Mormon. These are the ideas within Mormonism. So it's interesting that that Mitt feels the need to go out there and make some kind of political or social reparation and to march with Black Lives Matter. It's almost like he has really no choice. And he's going to try to allow the political energy of that to put wind in his sails there in the Senate. So there's a lot of different aspects that we need to get into here. So as we're going forward, it becomes necessary to try to work to construct an accurate historical background. And we have limited resources and time, so we want to know the fastest most accurate summation of the pertinent facts. We are trying to peruse a few interesting accounts and we'll be able to get a sense of what was happening in the days of Abraham Lincoln and how influential this new secret German political club that was instituted in 1833 at Yale University and its direct connection with Hegel and the Illuminati-led aristocracy and intelligentsia of Europe. And we want to try to get a sense of what their movements were during the Civil War and through this whole chaotic period in America. American history. So let's take a, a look here. We have an interesting book called Transhumanism, The History of a Dangerous Idea by David Livingstone. It was published in 2015, and it has a really interesting account here. So let's take a look. This is chapter 15, Central Intelligence, and the heading is Georgetown Set. The Office of Strategic Services provided a model, the OSS, for the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, that was established in September 1947. After the war, Truman wished to disband all agencies with no peacetime activities. The OSS head, William Donovan, wrote to Truman's budget director and suggested that instead that the OSS provided a means to serve a new political reality due to the advent of the atomic bomb. Thus, 
was the basis for the creation of the CIA, based in part on the rationale provided by Gregory Bateson, according to a document from its own studies, archives titled The Birth of Central Intelligence. Batesman wrote to Donovan, forecast that the bomb would shift the balance of warlike and peaceful methods of international pressure. It would be powerless, he said, against subversive practices, guerrilla tactics, social and economic manipulation, diplomatic forces, and propaganda, either black or white. The nations would, therefore, resort to those indirect methods of warfare. The importance of the kind of work the Foreign Economic Administration, the Office of War Information, and the Office of Strategic Services had been doing would thus be infinitely greater than it had ever been. The country could not rely upon the Army and the Navy alone for defense. There should be a third agency to combine the functions and employ the weapons of clandestine operations, economic controls, and psychological pressures in the new warfare. But the Bates and thought, and he would not be alone, that this third agency should be under the Department of State. The creation of the CIA was brought about by the lobbying efforts of influential group of journalists, politicians, and governments, officials that became known as the Georgetown Set, and that's referring to Georgetown University. Of course, that's the main and one of the oldest Jesuit universities in the country. And a lot of our clandestine service, our secret service, and a lot of our intelligence agencies are going to draw their members out of these Jesuit academics. So back to our book here on page 157. The early members of the group, also known as Wisner Gang, were composed initially mainly of former members of the OSS, such as Frank Wisner, Philip Graham, David Bruce, Tom Braddon, Stuart Alsip, and Walt Rostow. Over the next years, others like James Jesus Angleton, as well as Chip Bolin, George Keenan, Skull and Bones member Avril Harriman, John J. McCloy, Felix Frankfurter, and Alan Dulles, all out of Yale from the Skull and Bones Club. And they were all joined at their regular parties. John J. McCloy, a past president of the World Bank, was chairman of the Rockefeller and Ford Foundations. He was also chairman of the CFR, where he was succeeded by David Rockefeller, with whom he had worked closely as a chairman of Chase Bank. Prior to the war, McCloy had been, he was legal counsel to IG Farben. He became friendly with W. Avril Harriman and worked as an advisor to the fascist government of Benito Mussolini. So you can see that these Skull and Bones men were getting around. And this was before they had been exposed to the world by Anthony Sutton's work and before anyone knew about it. They were operating for, for many, many decades without anyone having any kind of clue that they even existed. In his dealings with Germany, McCloy worked closely with Paul M. Warburg, as well as his brother James Warburg in America. In 1936, he traveled to Berlin, where he met with Rudolf Hess and shared a box with Hitler and Hermann Goering at the Berlin Olympics. So, Skull and Bones is in the box at the Berlin Olympics. That's interesting to know. In 1941, Skull and Bones member Henry L. Stimson selected McCloy to become his assistant secretary of war. McCloy later blocked the executions of Nazi war criminals, forged a pact with the regime of pro-Nazi Admiral Darlin, displaced Japanese Americans in California to internment camps, refused to recommend the bombing of Nazi concentration camps to spare the inmates on grounds that the cost would be out of proportion to any possible benefits, unquote. He refused Jewish refugees' entry to the U.S. after World War II. McCloy helped shield Klaus Barbie from the French. McCloy commuted the death sentence of a number of Nazi war criminals and gave early release to others. One was Alfred Krupp, the ultra-wealthy German industrialist who was represented by Otto Scorzani in Argentina, and Halimar Schacht, who subsequently went on payroll of Aristotle Onassis. 
Krupp was also related through Chip Bowen's great great uncle, Civil War General Henry Bowen, born 1810, Skull and Bones, the first foreign born German Union general of the Civil War. So can you imagine that? This is a, a Skull and Bones German-born national that is going to serve in the Civil War. After the war, the Krupp Empire achieved infamy for the brutal use of slave labor during World War II. It is estimated that around 70,000 of those working for Krupp died as a result of the methods employed by the guards of the camps. Krupp was eventually found guilty of being a major war criminal sentenced to 12 years in prison and had all of his wealth and property confiscated. In 1951, McCloy announced that Krupp was to be released and his property restored to him, making him one of the richest men in Europe. So we'll go on a little bit more here. From 1954 to 1970, McCloy was the chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, the CFR, after succeeding David Rockefeller. And do you understand, McCloy is one of the, the leading skull and bones men that's going to be just ahead of George H.W. and George W. Bush. So McCloy, because of his stature in the legal world, his long association with the Rockefellers and his and as a presidential advisor, he was sometimes referred to as the chairman of the American establishment. Along with the other members of the Georgetown set, including George Keenan and Charles Rip Cullen, Beth Bolin, McCloy was among the six wise men, a group of U.S. government officials and members of the East Coast Foreign Policy Establishment who, beginning in the 1940s, developing the containment policy of dealing with the communist bloc, and crafted institutions and initiatives such as NATO, the World Bank, the Marshall Plan. The six friends who also included Dean Acheson, Skull and Bones member, W. Avril Harriman, Robert A. Lovett, were important foreign advisors to U.S. presidents from Roosevelt to Lyndon B. Johnson. So we need to move on to the next heading here, Knights of Malta. The CIA has been intricately connected with the Knights of Malta. The current name of the medieval Knights Hospitallers had inherited the dominions and the wealth of the Templars when they were destroyed by the French King and the Pope. And to this day, the Knights of Malta are a unique papal entity, which, although it has no landmass other than a small headquarters in Rome, holds the status of a nation-state. It mints coins, prints stamps, it has its own constitution, and issues passports to an accredited diplomatic corps. The Grand Master of the Order holds the rank in the Church equal to a cardinal and is recognized as a sovereign chief of state by 41 nations. Important known members of the Knights of Malta have included Leia Coca, Andre de Merand, the uh, chief of French intelligence, as well as Otto von Habsburg of Cloven of Synchronist Pan-European Union. The Knights of Malta have been in close relation with the Martinism since Cagliotro, the Illuminati Front, the Philadelphs, which by the which were some of the uh, lodges we saw that were in France during the French Revolution, which by some accounts had been established by Marquis de de Armisen, a Knight of Malta and member of the Grand Orient Freemasonry, and Amos. Reunis, the OTO, Ordo Templi Orientis, it's a famous uh, Freemason society, they're tying that in here, has claimed to be a body of initiates in whom were concentrated the wisdom and knowledge of the various esoteric traditions, including the Knights of Malta and the Martinists. According to Russ Ballant, although it poses as a Catholic organization, the Order John of Jerusalem is a Masonic group that claims to be the real Knights of Malta, its Grand Master for 50 years until his death several years ago was Charles Pichel, an advisor to Hitler, aide Ernst Hofstangel. The Knights of Malta compromise what is perhaps the most exclusive club on the earth. Stephen Birmingham, the social historian, wrote, they are more than the Catholic aristocracy. 
They can pick up a telephone and chat with the Pope. Martin A. Lee, in his article, There Will Be Done, stated the American branch of the Sovereign Military Order of Malta is one of the most important communication channels between the CIA and the Vatican, being able to transfer money in and out of countries to which neither the CIA nor the Vatican has access. The American Association of Sovereign Military Order of Malta, the SMOM, was founded in 1927. The Knights of Malta, in particular, Baron Franz von Papen, another Hitler aide, played a critical role in Hitler's rise to power. Von Papen became Chancellor of Germany in 1932 with the support of the Nazis. In June, he ordered the dissolution of the Reichstag, calling for the new elections, and after this, the Nazis emerged as the largest party and knew the new Reichstag. After a meeting with Hitler, von Papen persuaded President von Hindenburg to offer Hitler the chancellorship, which he assumed in 1933. Van Papen became his vice-chancellor. He was charged with conspiracy to wage aggressive war at the Nuremberg Trials, but was acquitted and subsequently offered a generous pension from the first post-war chancellor, Conrad Adenauer. So we'll go into a little more depth here, and between, between the CIA... Skull and Bones and the Knights of Malta is they're inextricably combined and we'll go on to the book here as explained by Francois Hervet it is probably safe to say that the several thousand knights of SMOM principally in Europe North, Central and South America comprise the largest most consistently powerful and reactionary membership of any organization in the world today in 1934 member John J. Raskab working closely with Morgan Banks John Davis had been a principal financer in the plot to organize a failed fascist coup in the U.S. By 1941, Francis Cardinal Spellman was listed as the Grand Protector and Spiritual Advisor of the Order. Spellman worked with Pope Pius XII to help Nazi war criminals escape justice, and as we'll find out later, that was escaping justice into Argentina and many into America, and they would be taken in by the CIA. The, uh, during his tenure in New York, Spellman's considerable national influence earned his residence the nickname of the powerhouse. He hosted prominent figures such as Joseph P. Kennedy, Sr., Bernard Baruch, David I. Walsh, and John William McCormick, and numerous other politicians, entertainers, and clergymen. Although Spellman frequently criticized films he perceived to be immoral and indecent, John Cooney, one of his biographers, cited four interviewees who stated that Spellman was a homosexual. And the journalist Michelangelo, since 1943, as explained by Frederick Laurent, the Holy See became the clandestine center of Anglo-American espionage in Italy. That Knight of Malta and OSS Chief William Donovan had secretly established an intelligence connection with the Vatican as early as 1941. And when he evacuated the Dominican Father Felix A. Morleone from Lisbon to New York, Morleone subsequently worked closely with Giovanni Battisti Montini, the future Pope Paul VI. In 1944, Pope Pius XII decorated Donovan with the Grand Cross of the Order of St. Sylvester, the oldest and most prestigious of papal knighthoods, given to only a hundred other men in the history. So, who, by feat of arms or writings or outstanding deeds, have spread the faith and have safeguarded the champion, the Church of Rome. So we'll just stop it right there, and uh, we can see that David Livingston is doing a good job of really bringing out what is unknown, what is a cult, and what is secret establishment power, and how they operate in different formats and other different undisclosed pseudonyms and titles. And so in this way, we can see that these men who have who have modus operandi and a code that operates from the medieval world, being subject to kings, to lord, and to the pope, they have to have their motives scrutinized. 
really looking through this book in order to try to find the unseen and hidden connections between the Order of Skull and Bones out of Yale, which is orchestrated and, and founded in 1833. And we're trying to find how that order and its influence would have connected and interconnected with the presidency of Abraham Lincoln at the time of the Civil War. And we kept reading pretty far past that point where we were discussing the German national, German-born national who was a skull and bonesman and was also a, a general in the Union Army under Abraham Clinton. So I think that's an important clue and an, an important documentation of the background influence that Skull and Bones is going to have within the American federal government and within the civil society itself. And I think that it's important to point out that, and it's the reason why I kept reading this very interesting book, is that we see the interplay of the Order of Skull and Bones, understanding its connections with Germany, with the Illuminati, and with Hegel, and how this is really just another branch of that really subversive power club. And, and it's really the globalists, the European aristocracy. And it becomes essential to make you familiar with the names, times, places, and events so that we can read between the lines and grasp the actual inference which correlates all these tangent leads and allows us to deduce what the actual goals of the order are. Even though no direct reference is going to be given within history, Skull and Bones is no longer the power that it once was. And so today, it's not really a secret. And we're really going over the facts over the last 200 years to find out what influence they had at the time that their power was most influential and, and exerted so much swing and so much sway over the, the judiciary, the Supreme Court, the presidency, and, and, and all different levels of society. They even created the American Medical Association and the American Psychological Association. We're all really the, the, the magazine Newsweek. So you have to understand that there is a latent, unseen, invisible power that this group has exerted up until the last 15 years. We have to consider that a lot of the members that were that were graduated in the classes in the 70s and 80s and were the Skull and Bones men were still alive. So even though the current members of the Skull and Bones order might be transgender kids and, and, and white women and, and black women and just other diverse folks that would never have been allowed in the order of Skull and Bones up until these kind of like times of political correctness, mandatory diversity requirements. So the, the order of Skull and Bones couldn't just remain a rich club of white, influential industrialists who were really Catholics being indicted into the Order of the Knights of Malta, but they were going with their particular religious beliefs undisclosed to a Protestant or what had historically been a Protestant university. So it's really a subversive group that has infiltrated into the highest levels of our, our capitalist system and within our government in the United States. In order to understand what the fascist, the attempt at a fascist coup and takeover of the, the executive branch of the United States, what that was all about, you need to understand how the Knights of Malta were situated within the federal bureaucracy and how they had to, they tried to use the Marine General Smedley Butler. So Smedley Butler was going to be the man who, who didn't take the bait and they tried to have him step in and they tried to surround him and empower him to take over the executive branch 
behind him as a military dictator and at that point he declined to do so and there was trials there was indictments there's a b- bunch of stuff that happened in history that you know nothing about so you need to look up how Smedley Butler determined not to be the, the military dictator and actually restored the proper civil uh, authority uh, in keeping the president intact who had been elected so we need to recognize some of these other names here we're going to hear them again and again John J. McCloy James Jesus Angleton Wild Bill Donovan or William Donovan Avery Dulles and his brother the, the, the Dulles brothers there's airports named after these men you need to recognize who they are and as we're going through these episodes and looking at this history we're going to see the same figures as we have to try to determine what was their connection between Skull and Bones the Order of the Jesuits the Knights of Malta the CIA the Vatican and these are not aspects of history that you can find readily described and openly exposed. These are the, the elements of intelligence agencies who are skilled at keeping the facts and the, and the proper contour of history out of sight and keep it obscured from the popular mindset. So right now, knowledge is power. And as the public is being dumbed down, it's more important than ever that you understand what are the definitions of the conflict. What are the rules of engagement? What are the, the rules of war as it, when it comes down to history? And who are the opponents of American liberty? That's really what we need to get, what we're trying to find out here. Who are the enemies of our American free popular government here in, in the North America? We just have a couple more little things we need to check out. We need to look at an intro to the Order of Skull and Bones by Anthony Sutton. Dr. Anthony Sutton, he's one of the high-level uh, academics that really allowed this to really be exposed in a lot of his writings. So we're, we're going to look at three of the most prominent Skull and Bones. Timothy Dwight, 49, 1849, professor in Yale Divinity School, and then the 12th president of the Yale University. Daniel Gilman, 1852, first president of the University of California, first president of Johns Hopkins University, and first president of Car- the Carnegie Institution. And of course, Skull and Bones was the organization that founded and set up John Hopkins University. Andrew Dixon White, 1853, first president of Cornell University and the first president of the American Historical Association. This notable trio were all initiated into the order within a few years of each other, 1849, 1852, 1853, respectively, and they immediately, all of them set off for Europe. All three went to study philosophy at the University of Berlin, where post-Hegelian philosophy had a monopoly. Dwight studied at the University of Berlin and Bonn between 1856 and 1858. Gilman was at the University of Berlin between 1854 and 1855 under Carl von Ritter and Friedrich Trellenberg, both prominent right Hegelians, and White studied at the University of Berlin between 1856 and 1858. Notable also at the University of Berlin in 1856 at the Institute of Physiology was none other than William Wundt, and uh, Wundt, the founder of experimental psychology in Germany, and later the source of the dozens of American PhDs who came back from Leipzig. Germany to start the modern American education movement. Why is the German experience so important? Because these were the formative years, the immediate postgraduate years for these three men, years when they were planning the future. And at this period, Germany was dominated by Hegelian philosophical ferment, which means excitement. There were two groups of these Hegelians. The right Hegelians were the roots of Prussian military militarism and the spring of the unification of Germany and the rise of Hitler. Key names 
among right Hegelians were Karl Ritter at the University of Berlin, where the trio studied, Baron von Bismarck, Baron von Stockmar, confidential advisor to Queen Victoria over in England somewhat. Before this, Karl Theodore Dahlberg, 1744-1817, Arch-Chancellor in the German Reich, related to Lord Acton in England and an Illuminati member, and he had a name in the Illuminati Code, Virulum, here it says, and he was a part of the right Hegelian group. There were also left Hegelians, the promoters of scientific socialism. Most famous of these, of course, are Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, Heinrich Hein, Max Stirner, and Moses Hess. The point to hold in mind is that both groups use Hegelian theory of the state as the starting point, i.e. the state is superior to the individual, Prussian militarism, Nazism, Marxism had the same philosophical roots, and it left its mark on, the, on our trio here. So now we're going to focus in on Gilman. Daniel Gilman is the key activist in the revolution of education by the order. Gilman family came to the United States from Norfolk, England in 1638. And on his mother's side, the Coy family came from Wales to Salem, Massachusetts before 1638. Gilman was born in Norwich, Connecticut, July 8, 1838, from a family laced with members of the order and links to the Yale College. It was known at that time that Uncle Henry Coy Kingsley, who graduated from the order in 1834, was treasurer of Yale from 1862 to 1886. James I. Kingsley was Gilman's uncle and a professor at Yale. William M. Kingsley, a cousin, was the editor of the influential journal New Englander. On the Coit side of the family, Joshua Coit was a member of the order in 1853, as well as Gilman Coit in 1887. Gilman's brother-in-law, the Reverend Joseph Parrish Thompson, was in the order in 1838. Gilman returned from Europe in late 1855 and spent the next 14 years in New Haven, Connecticut, almost entirely in and around Yale, consolidating the power of the order. So this is really the time in 1850s here where we're building up to the Civil War, and this is where I'm trying to focus in on here. So back to the book. His first task in 1856 was to incorporate Skull and Bones as a legal entity under the name Russell Trust. Gilman became treasurer, and William H. Russell, the co-founder, was president. It is notable that there is no mention of the order Skull and Bones, the Russell Trust, or any secret society activity in Gilman's biography, nor in any open records. Of course, that was their, their, their MO. That's how they operated. And they were secret for a very long time. The order, so far as it, its members are concerned, is designed to be secret, in part from one or two inconsequential slips, meaningless unless one has the whole picture. The order has been remarkably adept at keeping it secret. In other words, the order fulfills our first requirement for a conspiracy that it is, was entirely secret. The information on the order was that we are using surface by accident in a way familiar, similar to the surfacing of the Illuminati papers in 1783 when a messenger carrying Illuminati papers was killed and the Bavarian police found the documents. All that exists publicly for the order is the charter of the Russell Trust, and that tells you nothing. On the public record, then, Gilman became assistant librarian at Yale in the fall of 1856, and in October, he was chosen to fill a vacancy on the New Haven Board of Education. And in 1858, he was poised librarian at Yale, and he was ready to make bigger moves. The Sheffield Scientific School, that's where we're trying to get here. The Sheffield Scientific School, the science departments at Yale, exemplifies the way in which the order came to control Yale, then the United States. And in the early 1850s, Yale science was insignificant, just two or three very small departments. In 1861, these were concentrated into the Sheffield Scientific School with the private funds from Joseph E. Sheffield. Gilman went to work to raise more funds for expansion. Gilman's brother had married the daughter of chemistry professor Benjamin Silliman, who was in the order, 1837. So their, their families are going to always intermarry. 
It's going to be a kind of a returning point to the plot here. This brought Gilman into contact with Professor Dana, also a member of the Silliman family. And this group decided that Gilman should write a report on reorganization of, the, of Sheffield School. This was done and entitled Proposal Plan for the Complete Reorganization of the School of Science Connected with Yale College. While this plan was worked out, friends and members of the order made moves in Washington, D.C., and the Connecticut State Legislature had to get state funding for the Sheffield Scientific School. The Moral Land Bill, which was introduced into Congress in 1857, passed in 1859, but vetoed by President Buchanan. It was later signed by President Lincoln. This bill was known as the Land-Grant College Act, donated public lands for state colleges of agriculture and sciences, and of course, Gilman's report on just such a college was ready. The legal procedure was for the federal government to issue land scrip in proportion to a state's representation but state legislatures first had to pass legislation accepting the script. Not only was Daniel Gilman first on the scene to get federal land script, he was first among all the states and grabbed all the Connecticut share of the Sheffield Scientific School for the entire state of Connecticut. So he got it all. Gilman had, of course, tailored his report to fit the amount forthcoming for Connecticut. So we'll go on just a little bit more here. No other institution in Connecticut received even a whisper until 1893 when Storrs Agricultural College received a small land grant. Of course, it helped that a member of the order, August Brangy of 1840, uh, order 1849, was Speaker of the Connecticut State Legislature in 1861 when the state bill was moving through accepting Connecticut's share for Sheffield. Other members of the order, like Stephen Kellogg, 1846, and William Russell, 1833, were either in the state legislature or had influence from past service. So we'll just give the reading a little pause right there. It's it's important to understand how they were operating in the background in order to establish these different schools and universities and try to take a monopoly on the educational system at this point. And they were so successful that having grown out of New Haven, Connecticut and into Yale and taken over Yale, now they had taken over Connecticut's entire landmass for creating new and have the monopoly on creating new uh, educational institutions over the entire state. And this, they had the approval of Abraham Lincoln. So we can see now as we're working here, as we're interrelating history, that there's different facets of history that are interrelating. And that they were busy building a left and right dialectic, which requires establishing opposing arms of the political and military conflict, heading the leadership of these intended opposition groups, and getting them built out and prepared to have conflict with, with one another within society in order to create an outcome. So we see the deeply ingrained network of the influence and infiltration of European Illuminati as it's directly lining into the American body politic and operating underground within academia, within judiciary, within the federal government, within law enforcement. What becomes the most shocking of all is the dawning realization that the German Illuminati had gained control within the federal government in 1833, and by 1933, Skull and Bones would direct the rise of Hitler and Stalin from behind the board of directorships of major banking corporations like Brown Brothers and Harriman, and they were behind the creation of institutions like the Central Intelligence Agency. This German Illuminati would play a central role in the dictatorship of Hitler, 
the financing of the Third Reich, enabling the escape of high-level Gestapo and Third Reich leadership, and they even had a direct connection with the Holocaust. Skull and Bones men were controlled the IG Farben Corporation, which made Zykon B, which was the gas that was used to exterminate millions of European Jews. The picture, once the puzzle is complete, is that a covert extension of the aims and tenets of the Inquisition, the ultramontane knights of the Pope, punished Germany, which is the origin and the, the starting point for Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, which broke the temporal and spiritual power of the Roman papacy. So we will see that they would have their revenge and they would do it asymmetrically. Stand up knighthood orders, and they would stand up secret society clubs, and they would stand up political ideologies in order to name them and the names of their enemies and have them clash with one another in order to destroy them all. So we'll see here that, that Protestant France and Protestant Bill of Rights and Constitutional Protestant America and birthplace of the Protestant Reformation, Germany, would all square off in World War II and destroy one another in a total collapse of catharsis of all civilization. And this was done at the behest and triangulation of enemies that were undisclosed and were not present on the battlefield yet were influencing events behind the scenes. That's exactly what we see here with Skull and Bones. As we skim through Alexander Robbins' book, Secrets of the Tomb, we look at some notations that she has here that regarding the first junior society was founded in 1836, and it goes on to talk about this prestigious senior society scroll and key so there are other senior societies and the development alternatives to the imitations of skull and bones were mostly happening in the period up until the civil war that saw the most activity surrounding creating these other kind of copycat fraternities and it goes on to say that behind the large screen that blocks light from the outside of the door the decor of the rooms is hardly consistent, save the high ceilings, wood paneling. They're talking about the, the, how the, the decor inside the, the, the secret lair of the skull and bones. And a tendency to reflect Gothic overtones and Teutonic influence. In some cases, it may be difficult to distinguish between coincidence and camp. Take as example the two staircases that consist of 13 steps apiece. Near the front door is a bulletin board onto which members take notes, announcements, and letters. While one room is adorned with Chinese panels and dotted with bones from the hand of a monk, and one is sheathed in a Brussels carpet, another's colored tile floor reflects gaudy walls done up in red and black with white woodwork. 19th century tapestries abound during an earlier period. Any permanent decorations differing from the conventional Gothic norm or largely forbidden. One undated Skull and Bones House Committee reports discloses that, quote-unquote, due solely to the strenuous efforts of the secretary of RTA, Russell Trust Association, the painter of the job, was dissuaded from scattering a few cumulus clouds among the respective stars of the dome of the interior inner temple. Periodically, the Society's House Committee chooses portions of the tomb to renovate Wall ceilings, woodcraft, floors will be painted, waxed, and refinished. Carpets will be redone. Basement rooms whitewashed. War rooms as a prominent motif within the building during and after the Civil War. Founder Russell, General Russell, sent muskets to Bonesman, managed to incorporate into the society's infiltration rights for several years. The tomb houses a large collection of Civil War and World War One and Two memorabilia including German helmets, machine gun from a, a plane which a bonesman was shot down and taken as a German prisoner. Another member wore a single pair of boots throughout his activity during the Allied forces and shipped the pair back to the tomb immediately upon the armistice. But the tomb seems like more of a shrine to those who did not survive. Death imagery is everywhere. One Latin phrase engraved in the tomb is Tempus fugit, time flies. 
dozens of skeletons and skulls, both human and animal, elk, buffalo, the walls. And then it just goes on to talk more about the initiation oaths. It goes on to talk about one of the characters in the initiation is, is, is a character that is required in the initiation called Uncle Toby. Uncle Toby draws both a question from the topic of the debate and the name of the tunes, the, the bonesman who will speak about the topic until the sands of the, the hourglass run out. Uncle Toby continues drawing names of speakers until each member present has offered an opinion. It is through these debates and the autobiography sessions that Bonesman come to know their brothers thoroughly. On the strength of 1948 Bonesman, George Bush's debating performance in this arena, Bonesman and former Ohio Congressman Thomas Ludlow, Lud Ashley reportedly asked him upon his appointment as United Nations ambassador, George, what the fuck do you know about foreign affairs, quote-unquote? During the debate, Uncle Tom takes notes that will be assembled at the end of the year in the club's black book. The accuracy and thoroughness of the black book notes depends on the dedication of that week's Uncle Toby. But regardless, a Bonesman remembered fondly, they were great. We can go in there and read debates from the Civil War. After a recess, during which activities vary, the night sing a sacred anthem in room 323, the Outer Temple, and Uncle Toby again dons the robe and strikes the bell 15 times to single, signal a new activity. So we'll just leave it there. I'm just kind of briefly going through her book to try to point out to you that their involvement in the Civil War and later in World War One and World War Two are not very well known, but they were playing an integral, essential role in these conflicts. So... You can see that even just in our brief writing, they had to interact with the Lincoln administration in order to get their legislature passed where they could take over all the land grants for universities and the whole state of Connecticut. So that, that shows that they had influence over the entire state of Connecticut as early as 1860. And we go back to one of the earlier books we were reading, and they were talking about how there was a German-born skull and bonesman who was a general under Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War. So those are just a couple of the things we could glean out of the background histories of these books. Something that Alexander Robbins is not going to point out in her book, The Secrets of the Tomb, is that as they're taking part in this initiation ritual within the tomb, they're debating and they're, they're forced to take turns debating and taking opposite positions of an issue. So you're expected to be able to stand up and debate effectively for either sides of an issue. So you might debate effectively for the northern side of, of the war and you might get up and then take a turn and debate effectively for the Confederacy and the southern side of the war. And when William Huntington Russell sent back muskets of the Civil War to be displayed as memorabilia within the tomb, these were going to be muskets that were from both sides of the conflict. Muskets from the Confederates and muskets from the Union Army. So that's not something that's immediately spelled out or immediately obvious, is that these are agents that are supposed to understand and take part in the dialectic, whether it's being framed on purpose or whether it's just a dialectic or a conflict that's outbreaking within the civil society organically they're intending to use it to take advantage of it to spread their power to, to gain control over the society and to position themselves further and further within positions of power so we're going to go on here and listen to uh, an interesting audio clip and it's a little breakdown of a discussion between nelson turner and eric john phelps it's called international jesuit tyranny so let's give it a listen but the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior, my Lord, said in Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now this evening, by a manifestation of the truth to every man's conscience, to reprove and rebuke and expose error, Ephesians 5.11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Any people that are taken in spiritual bondage, 
to Rome inevitably must fall into mental, emotional, soulical, and lastly, physical bondage to Rome. The physical bondage to Rome, the Roman Catholic Core Church, and her right arm, the Jesuit General, and I do hope you enjoy this evening's broadcast. Well, thank you for your invitation, Brother Nelson. I guess this is on correctly. Okay. Uh, this night, tonight I would like to talk with you about um, one of the Jesuits' great masterpieces, <clears throat> and that is the doctrine of communism. You say, wait a second, I thought the Jews started communism. No, communism is a creation of the Jesuit order. They designed it in the mid-1800s after they had perfected all the communist uh, tenets, the ten planks of the manifesto, on their reductions in Paraguay. Now, the Jesuits had went into South America and started their reductions in Paraguay in the early 1600s. And for approximately 150 years, they ran 31 great reductions, and on those reductions in total was over 200,000 Guarani Indians who were taught to uh, make hides, tallow, they were taught to make violins, they picked herbs, they did a host of things for the order, and the order then took all this commerce, all these goods, and put it in international commerce and trade with their black ships. The Jesuits had the largest fleet of ships, second only to the Dutch in the world. They were called the black ships, and if you've ever seen the movie Shogun, you see one of their elaborate black ships. They traded in silk, pearls. They were the ones responsible going to the New World and taking away all the gold from the American Native American Indians of California when they would raid their sacred burial grounds, take all the gold, put them on the ships, and they would go back to Spain. The Jesuits had the largest commerce second only to the Dutch in the world, the Dutch Protestants. Now, while they were carrying on international commerce and trade in the 1600s and early 1700s, they also went into international banking. We have priests that, and bishops that complained to the Pope that they would be begging their bread from the Jesuits if the Jesuits were allowed to continue in their granaries and in their huge ownerships of, of cattle and sheep uh, the cattle industry, as we know it today in the United States, came from a Jesuit, uh, Jesuit Kino. So they were the masters of commerce everywhere, but they were the masters of communism, the masters of cartel, monopolistic capitalism, and the masters of socialist communism that reduces every man, every worker, to a universal equality that does not occur in nature. So one of their purposes is, is to take this communism that they perfected and put it on the Reformed or the Reformation Western civilization so, to the end that the middle class would be destroyed, that the white Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, Celtic middle class would be destroyed and reduced to the same poverty that existed in Roman Catholic nations in Europe and now in Mexico, in Central America, and in South America. You must observe that every Catholic nation, every one of them has a military dictator 
and has no middle class, has a paper currency. None of these Catholic nations own guns. They do not have the capacity to engage in free enterprise or true laissez-faire capitalism where one merchant competes with another and the merchant that makes the best uh, item at the cheapest price gets the sale. That's where the customer is king, and that's the kind of economics that make a nation great and prosperous and having the best items uh, for sale. So now the Jesuits are masters at corporate monopolies. Some of the corporations they control are Walt Disney. That's right. Uh, O'Donovan, the president of Georgetown University, was on the 17-member Disney board in, back in 1998. And so is it any wonder why Disney's coming out with all these witchcraft and sorcery cartoons? It's because the Jesuits control Walt Disney, uh, Disneyland, Disney World, and of course because the Jesuits control all high-level Freemasonry, Walt Disney, the pervert, was a high-level Shriner Freemason. So the Jesuits control all your powerful mega international corporations. Another one they control is uh, IBM. The IBM punch cards that, uh, if you ever read the book called IBM and the Holocaust, uh, it shows you that uh, Thomas J. Watson was the owner of IBM, the head of IBM, and Thomas J. Watson was a traditionalist, Tridentine, Protestant-hating, Bible-hating, Roman Catholic, Knight of Malta, that was involved in numbering all the Jews, taking a census of the Jews throughout Europe, so that then the Nazi SS, the Waffen-SS, controlled by the Jesuits through their stooge, Heinrich Himmler, the Bavarian Roman Catholic, could round up all the Jews of Europe and send them off to the concentration camps. That's right, the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust, really happened, just like the Lutheran Holocaust in East Germany and Prussia, uh, just like the Orthodox Holocaust in Russia, the Jewish Holocaust happened during the Second Thirty Years' War, the Pope's Second Thirty Years' War, which started in 1914 and ended in 1945. Continual war. So the Jesuits, being the masters of communism, having perfected the ten pillars of the Communist Manifesto on their reductions, they introduced it into Europe in 1848 with one of their Masonic Jewish Zionists, Karl Marx. Karl Marx was tutored by the Jesuits in the British Museum. He was their utter servant and slave. And you know, it's very interesting to notice that, that Karl Marx's father was a rabbi who had converted to the real Lord Jesus Christ of the New Testament and was a preacher. So he had this son, this servant of the devil, who openly admitted that he served Satan, this high-level Shriner Freemason that introduces this poison called socialistic communism into Western civilization. Now, what has this done? What has communism come from the Latin word communis, a good uh, Jesuit indicator of its Vatican origin? What has that done to Western civilization? Well, Britain is socialist communist. It has one of the highest taxes in the world. Sweden is socialist communist with heavy taxation. Sweden was a Lutheran country. Britain was a Protestant country. Now it's going back to the Pope as being the head of the Anglican Church. Uh, Denmark was a Protestant country, Lutheran. They're taxed to death. Holland was a Protestant country. It was reformed. I believe they pay something along the lines of 50 to 60% income tax. 
in Holland with all their socialism. One third, some, something like that, a tremendously high amount of the population is either sick or unemployed because they have no incentive to work anymore. The government takes everything they produce. I got a letter from a woman in Denmark. She said, we work like horses, and we can only produce two children. She said, but this government brings in all these Muslims. They have four and five and six children, and the government supports them all, just like they do here in America, like they do in Canada, like they do in Britain. All these Muslims, these people of color that are Muslims, coming into white Western civilization, controlled by the Jesuit order. For one of the things that Jesuits must do is they must destroy white nations. White nations have to cease to exist. That's why they are destroying Rhodesia. That's why Michael Mugabe, that pawn of the Jesuits, is killing 500 white people every month in Rhodesia, or pardon me, Zimbabwe. The same thing is happening in South Africa. We're seeing murders after murders and gang rapes after gang rapes, black savages gang raping the white women in South Africa. And yet I don't hear anything from Jesse Jackson or Louis Farrakhan about it. They're so righteous about all the, all the injustices going on in the world. How about defending a few white folks getting mass murdered in South African Rhodesia? They'll never do it because they're Masonic pawns of the Jesuit general. So, the Jesuits are busy destroying what was once a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant middle class. We have to destroy their race and we have to destroy their economics. So to do this, we're going to implement communism. And we're going to implement communism in the Pope's Holy Roman 14th Amendment American Empire that was changed from a Calvinistic Republic to a Jesuit Empire in 1868 with the wicked, sinful, evil abomination of that radical red Republican Jacobin creation called the 14th Amendment. That's right, the 14th Amendment that the southern states fought with all their hearts to keep from being shoved down our throats. Even Lincoln didn't want it. Lincoln, for all the terrible things that he did, he did not want centralization of power in Washington. He wanted the southern states to re-enter the Union on the same footing that they had left. That's right, Mr. DiLorenzo, in your book, The Real Lincoln, wrong conclusion. Lincoln was not a centralist. He wanted the southern states to come back into the Union on the same footing that they had left as sovereign states in a confederate or a federal republic where the central government in Washington's powers are limited by a written constitution. That, my friends, is a Protestant form of government. A Protestant, Bible-based, Baptist form of government is that as a government that is limited in its powers, be it a constitutional monarchy, be it a constitutional republic, the powers of the government are limited. Now, in this country, we don't have any limited powers anymore in Washington. They can do anything they want to do, or so they think. They can tax you to give money for the investigation of the reproductive act of a fruit fly, if they want to. They can tax you to subsidize any people that they want to. They're a, the Congress of the United States is no longer Congress, it is a parliament. It is a sovereign group of men that get together and decide where they want to spend their money, and there's no limitations on them because they're a parliament now. They're in a 14th Amendment, Holy Roman American Empire. You see, before the 14th Amendment, the Jesuits, they were limited in their powers. The federal government could only tax us on 17 or 18 things enumerated in the Constitution. Apart from those 18 things, they couldn't tax us. There was no welfare. 
Tell me, since when is it the government's responsibility to take care of us? It's our responsibility to take care of us as God blesses us. We didn't create a government to take care of us. We created a government, we delegated certain of our sovereign powers as people of a specific state to do certain things for us. One of those powers was to coin money and to regulate the value thereof. That's right. To coin money and regulate the value thereof. Again, in the Constitution it says, in Article 1, Section 10, No state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debt. That's right. No state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debt. You know, I'm 50. was 50 this year, or last year. And I remember the days when my grandfather used to give me silver quarters and walk in Liberty halves that were silver. Remember those days, any older folks? There's some of you out there that remember gold coins before FDR took it away from you in 1933. Tell me, did FDR have the right to take your gold coins from you in 1933 when the Constitution said no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debt? Tell me, did Lyndon Johnson have the right, that other, that other Freemason educated by Jesuits at Georgetown University, did Lyndon Johnson, that pagan, fornicating, mass murdering, Vietnam flag waving, sending our, my friends off to Vietnam getting killed for nothing, did that wicked sinner have the right to take our silver away from us in 1965 when the Constitution says no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debt? No, these guys didn't have the right to do that. See, they're acting like kings, and they put forth these edicts, and they have H.G.R. 192 that suspends payment in gold in 1933, and they have another edict or executive order that suspends the coining of silver coins. These guys do not have that power. These presidents overstep their bounds. And so what do we do? What can we do about this? I'll go back to that in a minute. Another thing that these Jesuit-controlled monarchical presidents did is they put upon us a heavy, progressive, graduated income tax. That's right. The wicked, sinful, heavy, progressive, graduated income tax. Now, a corporation, that's how they ought to be taxed. A corporation ought to pay a heavy, progressive, graduated income tax. The more money they make, the more tax they should pay. Because corporations are artificial people. They're pieces of paper. They have no morality. They have no desire to do right. All that matters to a corporation is to make profit. And of course, we see with certain corporations that declare bankruptcy, and they take all the shareholders' investments, and they take all the retirement money, like a WorldCom run by that Jesuit lay. They can steal all your money, and nobody goes to jail. No. Um, the heavy progressive income tax needs to be put on AT&T, IT&T, WorldCom, Boeing, IBM, uh, the, uh, every major corporation you can think of needs to pay a heavy progressive graduated income tax and the internal revenue is looking right down their throats. That's where the internal revenue service needs to be. But we're individuals, folks. We're natural persons in the law. And there's an old court case called Hale versus Hinkle that says that a natural person is different than a corporation and they should be treated differently. And so how should we be treated? Well, we should never, never pay a heavy and progressive graduated income tax because it's destroying the middle class. In fact,
fact, the middle class is already destroyed. There is no middle class in America anymore. It is gone. All we have now are the super rich. 1% of the American population controls 99% of the wealth. That's exactly right. So all you people living in, the, in Eastern Europe and China, if you might be listening to this broadcast, we're just as communist as you are. Maybe even more so because you see America made your country communist. It's, it financed the Bolshevik Revolution. It put Mao Zedong in power. There is no international communism except for the Knights of Malta working for the Archbishop of New York on Wall Street financing all this international communism, including the ramming down our throats of the heavy progressive graduated income tax. No, we should not pay it. What we should pay is the apportion tax. Every American should pay an apportioned tax. The Constitution said taxation and representation shall be by apportionment. That's in Article 1. Well, what is apportionment, Brother Phelps? Apportionment is like this. Let's say the United States was composed of 100,000 people. And the budget for the United States was $100,000 because, you see, the Constitution of the United States tells the Congress what it can spend money on. And apart from those things, it can't spend money. So let's say the population is 100,000 people and the budget is $100,000 a year. How much would each person pay? One dollar. The rich shall not pay more and the poor shall not pay less. That's right. The rich shall not pay more and the poor shall not be le pay less. Every person pays one dollar because it's the population dependent upon the census divided into the budget. That's an apportioned tax, and that's the tax we used to pay, that's the tax we used to pay in the states, and the wonderful thing about that tax is it's fun to pay, because we pay that tax willingly. We want to pay that tax, and if a person doesn't pay the tax, if a citizen doesn't pay the tax, he doesn't get the vote, providing, of course, that voting really takes place. Of course, we don't have any elections anymore, you know. All the voting machines are rigged, and they determine who's going to be elected. But when we really had voting boxes and we dropped the name in, that's wonderful because we get to keep control of our government through voting. That's what we need. And how do we finance our government? By the apportioned tax. Now, we don't want a flat tax. A flat tax that gives the government the right to dig into your private financial life. Do you know, beloved, that the government and nobody else has the right to know how much money you make, how much money you have, how much money you spend, and what you spend it on? That's nobody's business but yours. It's just as private as your relationship with your wife. It's nobody's business. It's nobody's business to know how many guns you have. It's nobody's business to know how many rounds you have. That's all private. Now, when you commit a crime, like if you're in the drug trade, like the CIA and the mafia, if you commit a crime, then you should be prosecuted and punished for it. You need to come under sanctions. Now, if you commit a crime with a weapon, with a firearm, you need to be prosecuted and punished for it. But we don't go after people with money. We don't go after the middle class. We don't go after people with guns. We don't go after people with Bibles. As long as people are not violating anybody's life, liberty, or property, the government is to leave them alone. The government's powers is limited. The purpose of government is to punish evil and reward good, not regulate every little thing we do. That's absolutism. That's absolutism. That's fascism. That's Jesuit fascism. And the Jesuits have said in their Servilta Catholica that the favorite form of the Vatican, the favorite form of government for the Jesuit order in the Vatican is fascism. Do you remember the JFK movie? 
And when Garrison's interviewing that homosexual, that sodom right there at the prison, and he says, fascism's coming back? It was, he said that uh, 12 years ago. Exactly right. The Jesuits have brought back fascism. And you know who they brought it back with? George Bush and the Patriot Act. Patriot Act 1 and Patriot Act 2. That's pure and simple suspension of the Bill of Rights and absolutism in Washington and fascism. Now, are you going to pay for this? Are you going to file your tax return this year and pay for all this fascism? Are you going to file your tax return this year and pay for our armies to get beaten over there in the Mideast, to be betrayed by our Joint Chiefs of Staff, just like Hitler's uh, generals betrayed the German armies east and it was uh, uh, beaten, cut off arms, they starved them. That's what they're going to do to our soldiers. Don't think our guys are coming out of there without having tremendous losses. That invasion is going into Saudi Arabia. I believe they're going to destroy Mecca and Medina. I believe they're going to deliberately fire the ire of all the Muslims up against us so that they're going to want to invade us and wipe us out. Millions and millions of Muslims are coming to America using Cuba as a staging base. I've said it for the last four years, even before they brought Al-Qaeda to Cuba. With that Jesuit-trained, high-level, 33rd-degree Freemason Fidel Castro running Cuba. You going to pay for this? You gonna file your tax returns this year, folks? Are you gonna file? Are you gonna sign that document under the penalties of perjury? That if any little thing is wrong, you can be brought up on charges for income tax evasion, which is a felony, and you can go to jail for the minimum of one year. Is that what you want to risk signing a tax return? Tell you something else about a tax return. Filing a tax return is voluntary. Did you know that? I can show you IRS commissioner after IRS commissioner that has said, our system of taxation is one of voluntary compliance. It's voluntary compliance. Did you know you are assessing yourself voluntarily? Do you like that? Do you like to, to tell a bunch of strangers in, at the IRS all your private financial actions are. Do you think the government has been given the right to know every penny that came into your hand and every penny you've spent? It only has that right if you're a slave. That's right. Everybody that does this is a slave. Let's just call it the way it is. You're a slave if you file a tax return every April 15th. Yeah, April 15th, the day the Titanic went down. April 15th, the day Lincoln called out troops on South. Yeah, April 15th, on the day Lincoln was assassinated by the Jesuits. The Jesuits love April 15th. It's a celebration day. So all the lemmings can run and file their tax returns so they don't all go to jail. But I love it. The fear of man bringeth the snare. You're all afraid of Washington. You're afraid of the IRS. You're afraid of the BATF. You're afraid of the, the DEA. You're afraid of the CIA. You're afraid of the FBI. You're afraid. You don't deserve to be free. The fear of man bringeth a snare. But whoso trusteth in the Lord, he shall be safe. Righteousness exalts the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. I tell you, if you live in fear of your government, they will make you fear. They will keep you a slave. They will send your, they will draft your sons. And the draft is coming. They're going to draft your sons. Hey, ladies. Remember when you gave birth to your son and your daughter 20 years ago? Remember what a happy bundle of joy that was? You raised them and changed their dirty diapers. and You worked hard and you sacrificed to feed them so you could maybe put some braces on their teeth and get a little better. And guess what? The government's going to take them 
and they're going to go draft them, and they're going to send them off to Saudi Arabia or the Middle East to get slaughtered. That's right. That's what they're going to do to you. That's what they did to my generation in Nam. Sent 58,000 of us to go to Nam to get killed for nothing. Take one hill and lose it the next. How do you think those soldiers felt? No wonder they were all on drugs. No one could win for them. When General Bottomley, he, he attacked with his F-4, went into Hanoi, dropped all his bombs there where he should have, they, they took his wings and suspended him. Going to do the same thing to your children when they go to the Middle East to die for the Pope and his Popish crusade. And you're paying for it every time you file a tax return. So now, how do we beat this? Well, the first thing you do is you don't volunteer to file a tax return. Let them assess you. Because unfortunately, because of the wicked and sinful 16th Amendment and the Bar Association that's against us, just like the Medical Association that's against us, they're going to they're gonna do their best to round you up and take you to court. And remember, their prosecutions are always selective. In fact, they're doing that to me here in Pennsylvania. So what, the, what you do is when somebody is accused of willful failure to file or not filing a tax return, I want you to remember that self-assessment is voluntary. Filing a tax return is voluntary. So when they're tried before you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, when you get on a jury, you hang that jury. You find them not guilty. When you go back and you dispute in the back room there, should we find this man guilty or not? The issue is filing tax returns is uh, voluntary. And you know why it's voluntary? I remember this federal case. Never forget it. This particular individual was before the judge. He was on trial for tax evasion. And they used his tax return as evidence against him. That's right. They used his tax return as evidence against him. And he said, Your Honor, how can you use a tax return against me in evidence? Because the Fifth Amendment says that I cannot be compelled to be a witness against myself. Now, Your Honor, I know that there's the law that I have to file the tax return. And therefore, if I have to file a tax return, it cannot be used against me in this proceeding. And you know what the judge said to him? You know what that servant of the devil, that federal judge said to him? He said, uh, friend, you filed the tax return voluntarily. That's why we can use it against you. That's right. They use them against you because you filed them voluntarily. And that's how they get around the Fifth Amendment. Isn't that clever? That's called the Jesuitism. That's called Jesuit casualty. The Revenue Code says, you shall file a tax return, shall means may. Shall means may. So, all these statutes that the Congress passes or that your state legislator statutes that cease to enslave you, like the Patriot Act or whatever, you just disobey them. Tell me, what are you going to do when they mandate that you have to turn in all your guns? That's coming. They're going to, the president's going to give an executive order. Well, because we've had a biological terror attack on the West Coast, and the West Coast is probably going to be hit here within this year or sometime. Because we've had this biological terror attack, we need to confiscate all the guns of the American citizens because it could, it could lead to terrorism. And they're going to try to get you to give up your guns, just like they got my grandparents to, to sheepishly give up their gold coins in 1933. What are you going to do? 
going to give them up? Because with gun confiscation comes mass murder. The only time a government can get away with mass murder on a population if the people are unarmed. And you know, in Britain, they've, unarmed, they've, they've disarmed the Brits, they've disarmed the Australians, they've disarmed the Canadians, they've disarmed the Mexicans. There is no country left in this world that is armed except the United Protestant States of America, or what was once Protestant and Baptist. All you black brothers that enjoy owning guns, you got that right from a bunch of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Baptists that shed their rivers of blood to have that right secured in the Second Amendment. And a white Anglo-Saxon Baptist wrote the Second Amendment, James Madison. And thank God for some white folks. So that's what's going to happen. They're going to try to take our guns. And when they do that, why you do not obey the statute because it's, because it's against the Constitution. When they prosecute you in court, you hang the jury. You do not allow that judge to use you as a jury to rubber stamp his what he wants to do. The jury is the fourth branch of government. The jury has the right to sit in judgment of the law and the facts. The Jesuits hate this. That's why the Jesuits love Roman civil law. They hate the English common law. They love the Roman civil law. And all the proceedings in all your federal courts now and all your state courts are according to the Roman civil law. And the Roman civil law is the form that goes along with the military dictatorship. Summary proceedings preceded by information. The state of Pennsylvania hasn't had a grand jury indictment in 40 years. If you're ever charged by the government for a capital crime, you're supposed to be indicted by a grand jury. Everybody, every place I've seen, they all are preceded by information. It's Jesuit law. You see, that one out of ten lawyers in this country has been educated by the Jesuits. We have Jesuit legal professions here in this country. The Bar Association is your enemy. The Bar Association, of, of which every judge is a member, goes along with the United Nations and the Genocide Treaty. Why didn't we hear a word from the Bar Association when the Patriot Act was shoved down our throats after the World Trade fiasco when, when Cardinal Egan brought the World Trade Center down using his Knight of Malta and the head of the CIA, George J. Tenet? Where was the legal profession that said, no way, the Patriot Act's unconstitutional, it will not be enforced by this court, any court. They're all a bunch of conspirators, just like the medical profession. Yes, that's right. The medical profession is the Pope's medical inquisition in this country. That's why they vaccinate you. Yeah, that's right. That's why they vaccinate you and give you polio viruses and give you DPT shots that are illegal in some countries and give you uh, MMRs and just a host of vaccinations so all your children can be sick with earaches and fungus and candida and have to go to the doctor for lots of antibiotics to get a further weakened immune system so they're dumbed down excuse me, and made stupid so they can't perceive and think for themselves and they need a government to tell them what they can do for them. The whole medical profession is against us. They're the, they're the slaves of the Pope that make sure that when your babies are born, they get a socialist insecurity number, that forerunner of the mark of the beast. Do you like being numbered, your friends? Do you like living by a number? Do you like having to do everything by a number? Do you realize that you cannot get married in the states of Maryland and Pennsylvania without a socialist insecurity number? Do you realize that? 
without a slave surveillance number? Tell me, you know what they ought to do? They ought to just take all our names away and say, this is you. 603-937-2201. You know, we get appalled when we see these Jews with the, ta with the tattoos that they got in Auschwitz, with their numbering that they got. That's what you got. You're just a Jew in Auschwitz here in America. You're numbered. You're regulated. You're told what you can do. You're told when you can come in and when you can go out. You're told how much money you can take. There's a 50% tax bracket. Yeah, you can't excel and become a millionaire and, and make a better mousetrap and they beat a pathway to your door. <clears throat> well, I've hit the income tax. <clears throat> that pillar of the Communist Manifesto that's wrecked white Anglo-Saxon Protestant civilization. <clears throat> now I'm going to hit the Federal Reserve Bank and then I'll be done. The Federal Reserve Bank was act was passed two days before bail mass. Some people call it Christmas. It's really bail mass. It has nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. They shoved that Federal Reserve Act down our throat December 23, 1913. Then Joe Kennedy caused the Great Depression when he short-sold and became a multimillionaire. And all the banks, none of them could reopen unless they were uh, insured FDIC with the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve is a private corporation, you know. It's controlled by the Knights of Malta. It's the Jesuits' bank. It's not the Jews' bank. It belongs to the Jesuit order and their front Masonic Jewish Zionists that work for the Jesuit order. The Jesuits put them out in front to make all you think that the Jews are running it, like Alan Greenspan. No, the Jesuits rule it, like William J. McDonough, the, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, that Irish Roman Catholic Jesuit-trained economist. Now, there's a Jesuit who runs the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and where all the gold in Fort Knox has been taken to and stored in there. You should see in one of the Smithsonian articles uh, the huge mountain of gold bars is in the Federal Reserve Bank, all belonging to the Jesuits. A central bank is key to the Communist Manifesto. So here we have a central bank and every progressive income tax. We should have state banks. We should have local banks. Just competing with each other in business like every other business. We should have gold and silver coin so that the silver dollar you make today is the same, has the same worth to it 20, 30 years from now. And so you're not living in poverty like so many elderly are because they've been raped, pillaged, and plundered by the government. This is what the Jesuits have done to the United States. They've wrecked Western civilization and they're moving in for the kill with, with uh, the final persecution of the Jews in this country under their Patriot Act with all their concentration camps in order. The Jesuits are about to do it. What are you going to do? If anything needs to change, it's going to begin with you individually. You can do something about it. If you trust the Lord, seek His face, He will direct your paths. 